Some of you, if not all of you, have noticed that when we go through a time of crisis, and things aren't going our way, that we obviously get upset, we get mad, and sometimes we blame God, don't we? And we question God, why would you allow this to happen? But have you ever been in a situation where you've thought it was completely horrible, but then after a period of time has elapsed, you've looked back and you've thanked God for it because it was an appointment with God, that the disappointment was actually an appointment? You know, you've heard it said that hindsight is twenty-twenty, And you look back and you see that God has worked all things together for good to those that love Him. While we're going through those times, we wince, we whine, we complain. And some of us are also aware that even when we are going through a time that's really not God's doing, although God has allowed it, but someone else has even sinned in our lives and caused horrible things to happen, that God can even weave those things in His providence to cause us to grow, to become more mature. And so He uses the good times as well as the crummy times in our lives to make us stronger and for His glory. Well, we see a situation like that occurring in chapter 6 and chapter 7, where persecution once again slams hard upon the early church. Now, i got to admit to you that although I am able to watch God work in my life and in the lives of many of you, much of the time I have no idea what God is doing. Because God doesn't owe it to me to tell me everything He's doing or explain how and what He's going to do. He does it, and I watch His will being unfolded. And sometimes I go through some stretching periods that I don't like. And I tell God about it. God, I don't like it. And yet, God is working something that probably if He were to tell me, I wouldn't believe Him anyhow. Habakkuk said, God, what are you doing? The enemies of Babylon are coming against us. What are you doing? God said, Habakkuk... I'm doing such a great thing that even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. Well, God is working an incredible thing in the early church that if God were to sit down with Peter, James, and John and tell them, I doubt that they would believe the magnitude of what God was doing and how God was going to use a seemingly disparaging situation, as we're going to see in this chapter, for His glory. A confusing time has come into the church. Stephen, who is a deacon, who is also, as we read in this chapter, a man filled with the Holy Spirit and power and great miracles. Someone that the early church said, here's a dynamic leader. We're going to read of his death tonight. And no doubt the early church was confused, angry, maybe saying, God, why would you let such a wonderful person leave us? He was a good leader. He was a good man. And now he's gone. He's dead. It's a very confusing time for them. And yet, his death lays the foundation for world evangelism. His death brings in persecution. Persecution causes the church to be dispersed and go places that they've never gone before. And it lays the seed for the gospel going into all the world. And what we're about to read, as tough as it may seem, was one of the best things that ever happened to the church. And it wasn't too bad for Stephen either. He got to go home and be with the Lord. So really, it was a no-lose situation, although I'm sure they tended to look at it and be confused and even get angry with God because they made a great lamentation, as we're going to see in just a few minutes. I am sure 
I've often thought about this. I'm sure that it was a wonderful experience to be a member of the early church in Jerusalem. Imagine living during that time and you were one of the people that actually saw Jesus when He was on earth. You happened to be in Galilee when He gave the Sermon on the Mount. You got to take notes from Jesus Himself. Later on, you entrusted your life to the Lord. And then you were in Jerusalem. And you'd walk to the temple and you'd hear Peter preaching a sermon. You'd be going up and down the marketplaces. Peter, how you doing today? Great. And John and all of the early disciples. What an incredible time it must have been walking around the streets of Jerusalem, being in the early church, seeing all of the people come to know the Lord. One altar call, 3,000 people. Another altar call, 5,000 people. That's an exciting fellowship. That got the attention of all of Jerusalem, probably all of the surrounding nations. The Scripture says that they were filled with joy. They had all things in common. They were together and had great fullness of joy. Now a change is going to come their way. Things are going to be different now. No longer this cohesive group of Christians in this wonderful environment of total joy and no problems. Persecution is going to slap hard on the early church and cause them all to go in different directions. But it's going to be one of the greatest things that happen. You know, I found that most of us like change as long as we initiate it. You know, probably all of us would say, well, I really I welcome change. Well, that's as long as you can pick the change. But when somebody else initiates it or God initiates it, you're not always that happy about it. You, like the rest of us, will complain, no doubt. Shake your fist at heaven. God, how could you allow this change to come in my life? Everything was flowing so beautifully. Well, it's because God happens to love you and often God has to shake us a little bit from our complacency even to get us to hear His voice and to see what He wants to do with us and then to set us on the right path. Let's look at the persecution here with Stephen. We've already introduced you to Stephen. Look back though in verse 3 of chapter 6. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Stephen was among that group. Look at verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen. And notice how he's described. A man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. He was full of wisdom. He had good reputation. He was a man full of faith. And then look down in verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. However, in verse 9, there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. So here's Stephen, a deacon, behind the scenes servant for the widows in the early church, now a preacher in the synagogues. And there's a dispute that arises between Stephen and these Jews, the freedmen. These were probably Jews who had been in foreign countries, dispersed, and were allowed to come back into their land. I don't know if you've seen the news lately, but there's an incredible exodus right now of Russian Jews back into the land of Israel. They're allowed to come into their homeland, and although that causes an economic crunch for the people in Israel, any Jew, they say, is welcomed in our homeland, and even if it causes them problems, they're being welcomed. However, I found out last week in North Carolina 
a person who lives in or who lives in Tel Aviv, a Messianic Jew, said what they're finding is something interesting that a lot of these Jews from Russia flooding into Israel that are being welcomed by the by the Israeli government are born again believers already. And they're going into the synagogues and sharing their testimony. And there's this mass exodus of people from Russia back into the land of Israel. And it could be, perhaps, this is what God was speaking of when He speaks in the prophet Jeremiah, I will say to the north, give them up, speaking of His people, and letting them come back into the land. And a lot of them are giving their testimony already in a land that asked them to come. Well, here's Stephen, sort of like that. He's come into his land of Jerusalem and he's sharing in the synagogue of these foreign Jews who had come together and formed their own synagogue and they're arguing with him. They're disputing, no doubt, Christianity versus Judaism. However, Stephen was a little more than they bargained for. Look at the next verse. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. You know that that is a fulfillment of what Jesus promised? Listen to what he said in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus said, But before all of these things, they will lay their hands on you, persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Now, Jesus frankly says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be persecuted. Not everybody's going to pat you on the back. And you're going to have to give an account. But don't worry, it will turn out for you to give your testimony, for you to share the gospel with them. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Now here's Stephen. And he's in the synagogue and they start asking him all these trick questions, no doubt. And God gave him wisdom at that time. Some of you have had this experience. You've shared it with me. I don't know, it was several Thursday nights ago when you were, some of you were mentioning about witnessing. And you were sort of caught off guard and they asked you questions and at first it was a little difficult, but all of a sudden the right things to say came into your mind and your heart and scriptures came into your mind. You probably didn't even knew that you knew them. And you shared them and it was effective. And the Holy Spirit was working in you. Well, here's Stephen in the synagogue. They were unable to resist the wisdom with which he spoke. Okay, that didn't work. They try a smear campaign now. Let's read on. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came to him and seized him and brought him to the council, the Sanhedrin. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Now that was a serious accusation. There were two things the Jewish people loved. I would say still love, but they don't have one of them. But they loved them. And if you spoke against either one of these things, you were in deep trouble. One was the temple. Secondly, it was the law. The Jews called the temple the house of God. The Jews called the law the word of God. The law of God. The dictates of God. To speak against either one of those things was blasphemous. 
no doubt as they were disputing in the synagogue. Stephen was simply affirming that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Remember that people accuse Jesus of the same thing. Remember Jesus one time said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up again. And they said to him, hey, we've spent 46 years building this temple and you're going to build it in three days? But then John says he was speaking of the temple of what? His body. How that he would be killed and resurrected. But they took his words and twisted them and Jesus was falsely accused of this before the Sanhedrin, before his death. At another time, Jesus said, Do not think I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. And no doubt, Stephen was pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But they were twisting his words because they were unable to dispute his theological wisdom. He had such sound biblical wisdom. So they brought out false accusations. He spoke against our temple and against the law. He's a blasphemer. Now he's going to get into trouble. And he has to stand before the council, the Sanhedrin. And all who sat in the council, verse 15, looking steadfastly at him, I like this, saw his face as the face of an angel. Why a face of an angel? It's interesting, when Moses came down the ten, from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, with the law, what happened to his face? It was shining like an angel. And they put a veil over his face so that they wouldn't see the glory departing. Well, here's Stephen being accused of blaspheming the law, and it's almost like God's stamp of approval on Stephen. Just like Moses' face shone when he gave the children of Israel the law, Stephen has the right interpretation of the law that it points to Jesus. And they looked at his face and they saw that it was the face of an angel. And now he's going to be called to give an account. What happens here in this meeting is going to cause a great persecution that will sweep the church in Jerusalem and it's never going to be the same again. And so we're going to see his sermon. I want you to notice a few things about it. First of all, Stephen started out as a deacon as a servant, ministering to widows. He didn't start out by saying, um, excuse me, Peter, I am a great preacher. Here, let me show you some verses I've memorized. Here's a quick sermon for you. What do you think? Let me speak for you Sunday, all right? He just served, and God gave him the opportunity later on to open the doors for him to be a dynamic witness. Jesus wants us to be faithful to the calling He's given us so that He'll be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, now you can be in charge over much. We see that with Stephen. Notice something else. And I marvel at this. As I read through this chapter this week, here's a man who knew the Scripture, it seems, inside and out. No record of being formally trained. I mean, there wasn't seminaries back. This church just started. But obviously he was equipped enough in the Word for the Spirit to give him recall into the salient points of Jewish history. And he has an incredible grasp on the Word, which comes to us as an important point. If you want to be someone used of God in a powerful way, study the Word. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to go to seminary. Just read it. Study it. Study to show yourself approved. A workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. It's a shame when a Christian says, well, you know, I just really don't know the Bible, but I think it kind of says, it's all right. 
but study it so that you don't always have to say that. And Stephen has an incredible grasp of the word. By the way, every revival that we see in the scripture and that is recorded throughout history is a revival that's centered around the word of God. A devotion to it. The preaching, the teaching, the adhering to it. And people reading it. Stephen was one of those men. The high priest in verse 1 of chapter 7 said, Are these things so? You know, for some people, they need almost a kick in the pants from the Lord to get to witness. I mean, they need someone to come up to them and say, what must I do to be saved? Before they say, you know, I think that's an open door from the Lord right there. Don't, not quite sure, but kind of sounds like a setup. There are other people who aren't looking for open doors. They're looking for just, the door could be open a fraction. And they'll just push it open a little further. They'll go for it. Picking up hitchhikers along the way. Don't know if it's an open door, even if it's an open window. Lord, I'm crawling in this thing. Stephen was like that. All it took was a simple question. Are these things so? And he just goes for it. A whole chapter he goes for it. Now, as you read this chapter, you are tempted to think, Stephen, you're babbling. Because instead of saying, yes, these things are so, listen, just for a few verses, he says, Men and brethren, fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Abraham, I'm asking if these things are so. Have you blasphemed against the temple and the law? Well, let me tell you about Abraham. Now, it's going to seem like this is a strange way to give a defense when your life is at stake. However, he's painting an incredible picture for these guys and he's going to use it to slam them hard and the Holy Spirit will use it to cut their heart and convict them. you got to understand that Jewish people, especially in the first century, loved to hear their own history recounted to them. And secondly, Stephen wants to show them how that the New Testament is compatible with the Old Testament. And how that Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament. So they shouldn't be intimidated by the fact that he's in the synagogue of the freedmen sharing about the temple, sharing about the law, and how that Jesus came to fulfill both of those things. So that's what he's going to do in these verses. Now what he does, he goes through the salient points of Jewish history. He brings out lessons that they have never listened to before or heard before. And he's going to speak about four individuals. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and then David and Solomon together when the temple was rebuilt because he's going to show them one major point. Throughout history, God was not limited to time and space. He didn't erect a a temple and say, okay, this is it. The only way you can worship me is in this temple. I live in this house. This is where I live. If you want to speak to me, you've got to come to this temple. He's going to show that God is not confined to time or space. And he's going to do it in a masterful way. First of all, Abraham. Let's read that again in verse 2. Men and brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And he came out of the land of the Chaldeans, dwelt in Haran. And from there when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give to him for a possession 
and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would sojourn in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And then he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. Now, imagine the Sanhedrin listening to this. This man's been accused of blasphemy against the law and the temple. Stephen, are these things so? Well, you know, Abraham a long time ago was taken from a foreign country and he went into the land which you are. And then he had his son Isaac and they're kind of stroking their beards going, yeah, okay, where are you going with this thing? You know, earth to Stephen, earth to Stephen. Are we on the same wavelength here? But they're patiently waiting. Now, notice what he does after speaking about Abraham, and he spoke about Abraham for a very important reason. It was God who initiated the whole process of Abraham leaving his land and coming to Israel. God spoke to Abraham. This is God's work, and he's going to get him to agree. Okay, great. No problem. I agree with your theology so far. Just as an aside, however, I've always been impressed with the fact that the New Testament paints Abraham to be a man of great faith. And I'm grateful for that because Abraham was flawed, and yet Hebrew says by faith Abraham did this and that, when many times he was a failure at his faith. His faith was incomplete. God said, Abraham, leave your relatives and come into this land. What does he do? He takes his dad with him. A man of faith and honesty goes down to Egypt to King Abimelech. And he tells his wife, Sarah, who's 90 years old, but obviously good looking. He says, listen, Sarah, you're so good looking. You're only 90 years old. And I'm afraid that the king will steal you away from me to be part of your harem. So when he asks you who you are, say that you're my sister. Otherwise, he could kill me if you're my wife and take you. A man of faith telling his wife to lie. God had to speak to Abimelech in a dream and say, listen, the guy was putting you on, and the unbeliever rebukes the believer. And nonetheless, he's upheld as this man of faith because God has chosen the foolish things of this world. And so when I read about Abraham exalted as a man of faith, I get encouraged. <laughs> now look at verse 9. And the patriarchs became envious and sold Joseph into Egypt but God was with him. Now he's starting to paint a spiritual picture and an analogy between these Old Testament people and Jesus Christ. It says, now Joseph was sold. His brothers were envious of him. But God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all of his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers out first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. You see, he's drawing a spiritual picture. You remember Joseph, the first time his brothers were with him, they didn't recognize him. Even though he was the king over them. They didn't recognize that he was their king. 
But the second time he was revealed to them, even as it's very true. The first time Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. The second time Jesus comes again, it is recorded of the children of Israel. They will ask him, what are the meanings of the wounds in your hands? And he will say, these are the wounds I received in the house of my friends. And they will mourn over him and mourn over their lost condition as he is revealed a second time to them. Now going on, Joseph sent and he called his father Jacob and all of his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money for the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Now he changes from Joseph, speaks about Moses, and most of his time will be spent in the life of Moses. He still hasn't answered the question yet, has he? Hey, are these things so? Well, let me tell you about Abraham. He came from a land called Chaldean and Donna. And let me tell you about Joseph. And they're just listening to him. And so far, they no doubt agree with him. Now he's going to spend most of his time with Moses. Why? Because he was accused of blaspheming the law of Moses. Great. Let me tell you about Moses then. When the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. And at this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away, brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. By the way, a lot of you find it hard to read the Old Testament. Read and know chapter 7 of the book of Acts, and you will have the Old Testament in a nutshell. At least the salient, epical periods of the Old Testament. And he's going through, real briefly, the entire Old Testament. It's a quick Bible study for the whole Bible. Verse 23. But when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, He defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed, now listen to the words carefully. He supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Now Moses, excuse me, Stephen is sharpening the knife before he sticks it in them. He's saying, Joseph wasn't understood by his own brethren. They envied him. They didn't even know who he was and he was their king. Moses was the one God sent to the children of Israel to deliver them. They didn't recognize him. They didn't receive him. Now, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, would often quote their previous rabbis and make reference to the fathers in some kind of a holy, revered way. Oh, our fathers did this, and our fathers said that, as if their fathers were blameless. 
And Stephen is going to say, let me tell you something about your fathers. Your fathers didn't listen to Joseph. Your fathers didn't receive Moses. Your fathers are not all that flawless. They made some goofy, foolish mistakes and never once, it seems, received God's leaders when they were sent. Look down a little bit. Oh, at verse 35. Whom they rejected, saying, Who made you to be a ruler and judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of Prophets, and he quotes the scripture. Verse 44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. Do you see the reference he makes to our fathers? Oh, you Sanhedrin, always speak of our fathers, our fathers. Your fathers blew it. Your fathers never received the ways or the messengers God sent to them. They didn't receive Moses. They didn't receive Joseph. And Moses spoke of another prophet. And he said, him you shall hear or you'll be cut off from the land. Now he speaks about the time of the temple under David and Solomon. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern which he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought it with Joseph into the land, possessed by the Gentiles whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the day of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house are you going to build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all of these things? Now listen, he sticks the knife in here. He really lays it on thick. You stiff-necked! You know why he called them that? That was a common name for the children of Israel under Moses in the Old Testament. For the fathers. Our fathers, our fathers. Well, let me use a term that Moses said to your fathers. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so to you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, whom you have become the betrayers and the murderers who having received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. You know, he never read how to make friends and influence people. If he did, he never applied it. Because they said, are these things so? Let me tell you about Abraham. 
Okay, I agree with that. Let me tell you about Joseph. Mm, good theology. Let me tell you about Moses, and David, and Solomon. And I'm thinking, what's your point? My point is this. They were stiff-necked, so are you. Moses foretold of the coming one. Your fathers persecuted the prophets, and your sin is worse because you persecuted the one they told you about. You murdered him. You're stiff-necked. He really lays it on thick. Now, before we go on to see their reaction, and if you've read it, you already know their reaction, Stephen dies because of this. Stephen makes reference to the temple and Solomon inaugurating the temple in some of those verses. Why? Because they made an accusation against him. He's speaking against the law and he's speaking against the holy temple. And what he's trying to point to them is this. Tabernacles and temples are fine, but God doesn't live in them only. It's not the house of God. Because God is tied not to buildings, but to his people. Even Solomon is recorded in Chronicles after the temple was constructed. He looked at that temple that he built. After years of labor, he looked at it and he said, Heaven, even the heavens of heavens, cannot contain thee, much less this house which I have built. You know, when I was a kid going to church, I often heard a phrase, the house of God. And it was often used in a negative context because I would be misbehaving in church. And I'd often hear my parents say, don't run in the house of God. And you know, I really grew up thinking that God lived at that building. And God's address was down the street at that church with stained glass windows. And if you wanted to talk to God, the closest place to do it is in that building. And I thought of God in geographical terms. I mean, this is where I live, you live down the street, God has a house too, right down the street. And God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And we must never forget that. We should never attach importance to a holy place. And God doesn't have holy places, only holy people. When we go to Israel, I know that sometimes every year we have a tour. We've gone, oh, I don't know, from this church about ten times. Maybe not that, no, maybe about nine times, eight times, but... When we go to Israel, some people are disappointed because they expect to see the authentic place that something was performed in, some miracle, some place Jesus walked. And they often get disappointed because there are very few, if any, real authentic places. They want someone to say, this is the place where Jesus touched the layman. Right here, right where your feet are standing. Do you feel the tingles? Oh, yes. <laughs> and you don't get any of that. In fact, it's confusing because on the Mount of Olives alone, there are three separate churches, all of them that claim Jesus ascended into heaven from that spot. And so if you're in Jerusalem and you say, hey, I want to see the Church of the Ascension, a good tour guide will say, which one? Which denomination? There's three separate denominations that will point to the place Jesus ascended into heaven from. There's even one church that allegedly has the footprint of Jesus left behind as he, you know, launched off. I've seen the churches, and I've sort of chuckled under my breath, because as I read the Gospel of Luke, it says that Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, but there are several places on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a huge, it's a large surfaced area. And there are a few towns on the Mount of Olives. 
And all of the places that these churches have their little monuments are right up top in Jerusalem. When it says in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus went as far as Bethany, where he ascended. None of them are right, because none of them are even close to Bethany. You have to go to the other side of the slope, way down the slope, before you get to Bethany and the same Mount of Olives. But, you know, people expect to go into these places and go, oh, I stood in the place. And, you know, if you've gone and you thought you've been on the place, I've just, you know, bursted your bubble at this point. But Stephen says, it's not important. It wasn't important to Solomon. You make such a big deal out of your temple as if this is the only place God can speak to people in. And you make such a big deal about your fathers. And your fathers are the one that persecuted the prophets who spoke about Jesus whom you murdered. Let's see their reaction. When they heard these things, they were quite happy. No, what does it say? They were cut to the heart. You can expect that. And they gnash, or they were grinding their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You know, that's so beautiful to me because it says that Jesus ascended into heaven from Bethany. And he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Sitting. It's a finished work. Here Stephen sees him standing as if to welcome him into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, which he just did, I'll confess you before the Father in heaven. He's giving him, if you will, a standing ovation or a standing entrance. I see him standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice. and They stopped their ears. Remember when you were a kid and you'd argue with another kid and you'd call each other names and you started getting provoked? What did you do? You'd plug your ears and you'd keep shouting at them. Thinking, I'm not going to hear what you have to say to me, but I'm going to yell real loud at you. These guys are acting like little kids. There's none so blind as those who will not see. None so deaf as those who will not hear. And they close their ears. They don't want to hear about it because Stephen is chiseling away at their traditions. Instead of being open to the Word of God, which he fluently and aptly quoted, Stephen You've stepped on our traditional toes. And you know, you can get people angry by stepping on their traditional toes. A person can be sane in a conversation, but it's often if you step on the little traditions they grew up with. Even if they don't have biblical precedent for them, they'll get angry at you. And you might not have the same reaction, but you'll have a pretty stiff reaction. And they ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God. And he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Reminiscent of Jesus on the cross. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Again, reminiscent of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Would you have prayed that prayer? I know that's not a fair question. But I know my human nature. And I know that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But when I get wrong personally, I have a flesh nature too. And when somebody throws rocks at my head, I get a little bit upset. And I tend to say, vengeance is mine, says Skip, and get a bigger rock. But what a heart of forgiveness. Lord, don't even lay this sin to their charge. 
And when he had said this, he fell asleep. (laughs) Jesus said, he who lives and believes in me will never die. What a beautiful way to describe Christian death. We speak of it in terms of defeat. He fell asleep. Now this seems like an incredible tragedy. Now look at chapter 8, verse 2. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. They were shocked. They were stunned. Stephen, a man full of faith, love, power of the Holy Spirit, a powerful person, could be used of God, had many more years of ministry left was taken from them. And I can just hear some preacher at his funeral saying, he had an untimely death. I doubt it. I think God was saying, nope, he was right on time. Because Stephen's death, looking back with hindsight, proved to be one of the greatest things that could happen to the church. You say, well, what did it cause? It caused persecution. You didn't get excited. Stephen's death caused persecution. Okay. Why is that such a great blessing? Well, let's let's just read on. Just, Just keep that in mind. Look back in verse 58 of chapter 7. They cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now we're introduced for the first time to Saul of Tarsus, a young, brilliant rabbi, Jewish to the max. A Pharisee of Pharisees, he says in Philippians, a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the the law. I was blameless. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Now, As he was being stoned, Saul was watching this whole thing. In fact, they put his clothes down at his feet. Belonged to the Sanhedrin now. I personally believe that Saul watching this great man of God die brought deep conviction to his heart. I don't think Saul had ever seen a man die like this. And there's a difference between men who die without Christ and men who die with Christ. And I'm sure that as Saul looked at this man bleeding on the ground outside Jerusalem saying, Lord, forgive them. Don't lay this sin to their charge. And he peacefully went to sleep. That made an impact on him. And under conviction, we now read about Saul persecuting the church and making great havoc out of it. You know that a person under persecution is a dangerous person to be around? I feel for some of you who are married to unsaved husbands or wives, And if they're under conviction right now, as the Holy Spirit is trying to convict them of their sin, they're hard to live with. They could lash out at you and say the cruelest things. They can do the worst kinds of things. They're tough to be around because they're fighting against the Holy Spirit. Some of you tonight might be fighting against the Holy Spirit. You're here with a friend, you're here with a relative, and the Holy Spirit has been saying, get right with God. Give Jesus your life, and you've been trying to fight it. Oh, you'll go through the outward motions, you'll come to church, you carry a Bible, you put on a smile, but you haven't surrendered to Him. And you might be hard to live with, because you're fighting the conviction. Remember Saul of Tarsus as he gets knocked off his animal on the way to Damascus. And he says, oh, who is it, Lord? He says, it's Jesus of Nazareth. It's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? 
It's hard for you to fight this conviction. Now look at uh, verse 1, chapter 8. And Saul was consenting to his death. In Greek it means voting, which indicates that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Jewish elders. He was saying, yeah, kill him, stone him. He was the one that voted. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, or except the apostles and devout men carried Stephen to his burial, and they made great lamentation over him. You see that word uh, scattered in verse 1? It means scattered like seed. See, up to this point, something has happened. The early church in Jerusalem has had a great time watching the growth, thousands of people coming to know the Lord, the joy, the fellowship. Do you know what it feels like when you've been out of fellowship for a long time? Maybe you haven't found a church that really fills a need or whatever, and you finally get into a place of fellowship. Do you know the warmth of that when you've been isolated from a long, for a long time? Well, imagine the joy of the early church. They go, oh, this is a great place. 3,000 people at Peter's altar call last week. Wow. People healed. What a great place to hang out. Now they get scattered all over Samaria. Look up at verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Remember I said something to you that you quite didn't understand a few minutes ago? Stephen's death was one of the greatest things that happened in the early church. And you were thinking, what? Why? What did it bring? Persecution. What's so good about that? Persecution led to dispersion. Dispersion led to world evangelism. Remember Jesus told them something? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, they loved just staying in Jerusalem. This is a great place. Who'd want to leave Jerusalem? This is great. We're under the spout where the glory comes out. We've got it made. But the Lord wanted them to leave their comfort in Jerusalem and get them out into Samaria. And so He had to shake them loose from their complacency through persecution. They were scattered everywhere. They didn't have a choice. But wherever they went, they preached the gospel. Look at that verse again. Therefore, those who were scattered, not the apostles... They stayed in Jerusalem. Everyone was scattered except the apostles. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. You know, it's interesting. We choose by nature the easy path, the path of least resistance. And yet there's always danger in a life of ease and no resistance. There's a softness that develops when things are too easy for us. Notice how flabby the person gets who never exercises. The early church was getting a little bit soft. Oh, it's such a great place to hang out. We love Jerusalem. They were in a rut. Persecution caused them to be scattered. I'm sure they were going, God, how could you let this happen? Stephen died. All of our friends are scattered everywhere. Broken homes. Ah, but what happened? The gospel was spread throughout Samaria. They'd never heard the gospel before. And sometimes we know what it's like, don't we, for God to shake us a little bit. 
We've planned, we've prepared, we finally got the right job, the right place, the right people, the right fellowship. We think, this is the life. Oh, this is great. I like it just the way it is. It's just smooth sailing. And so we kind of sit back on our couch of ease. And that's all right. God loves to bless us. But sometimes we can forget what He called us to. He didn't call us to join a bless me assembly, but to share His gospel. And so you come home and you think, Honey, I just got a raise. Let's take that cruise we've been waiting for. Oh man, let's just splurge. This is the life. You come back from your cruise and there's a notice from your boss. And you put the cruise on credit. And the boss says, We don't need you anymore. And then all of a sudden, what do you do? What's your first reaction? Oh God! Go help! God, I love you! God says, hey, how you doing? I haven't heard from you in a long time. It's funny how turbocharged our prayer life is in times like that, right? All of a sudden, we're close to God. Oh yeah, you need to be close to God. Your hide's on the wall. And perhaps God put it there. Because all of a sudden now you have a listening ear. And your eyes watchful upon the hand of the Master and you're thinking, okay, you got my attention. What is it you want me to do? I'll do anything. That's where He wants you. And oftentimes that life of no ripples, that life of ease, we lose that. And so God in His great love pulls the rug right out from under your feet. And you're hanging on for dear life and you cry out, oh God, what do you want me to do? God says, ah, that's what I've been waiting for. the book of Haggai. They'd come back from captivity. They were in Jerusalem. But they said, it's not time for us to build the house of God. They call it the temple of God or God's house. That was a euphemism for it. It's not time. And so the prophet Haggai came on the scene and said, you people are saying it's not time to build the temple. Is it time for you to settle down and dwell in your fine paneled houses and let Jerusalem lay in ruins? Here you are, back from captivity. You've forgotten the hard life. You've forgotten the difficulty. It's fun. It's easy. You've got these nice places to live and life is great. You've forgotten why you're here. God called you here to build walls and to have a place of worship and center your activities around the living God. And Haggai was called as a prophet to shake them out of their complacency. And before we close, real quickly, notice verse 4, who did it? Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. It's not the apostles. The apostles stayed. These are lay people preaching the gospel. Don't think that we're going to win the world to Christ by paid clergy. We need 2.7 billion of them to do it. These people all went everywhere preaching the gospel. They had a new revival for evangelism because God pulled the rug from under their feet. God's called all of us to be His witnesses. And that's why we're here. Someone once asked a lawyer a simple question. Well, what do you do? And I loved his answer. He said, well, I'm a lawyer to put bread on the table, but my business is winning souls for Christ. That's why I'm here, not to be a lawyer. To win souls for Christ. And you could say that about whatever occupation you have. Well, what do you do? Well, my business for this world to put bread on the table is a janitor, a clerk, 
a businessman, a businesswoman. But my real business is to win souls for Christ. They went everywhere preaching the gospel. Ask yourself a couple questions in closing. When is the last time you were persecuted for your faith? Oh, you might not have been stoned, but what about talked about, laughed about? Well, I can't ever remember being persecuted for my faith. Well, maybe it's because you never shared it and they don't know. Not that you need to try to make yourself obnoxious so that you can walk home and think, I was persecuted. (laughs) Perhaps not for righteousness sake, but for weirdness sake. (laughs) But make sure it's for the gospel's sake. When was the last time you were persecuted for the gospel? And what about personal evangelism? Are you involved in it? Do you tell others about Jesus Christ? And finally, what is your reaction when God upsets your plans? When He initiates changes in your life? you say, God, okay, you got my attention. Or do you say, why would you let this happen? I like the story about the kid. Spent hours building a boat, toy sailboat. Took it out to the lake with all the other kids. Proudly placed that little boat on the lake. And the wind came and started blowing it across the lake. And he looked with great pride at that boat he spent so much time. And all of a sudden, a gale of wind came across and the boat sunk. And the kid looked at it, shook his head and said, It's a great day to fly a kite. (laughs) Not, I lost my boat. But that's, there's the wind up. Let's go fly a kite. Perhaps you're going through a real tough time. Say, Lord, what do you, what are you, are you trying to say something here? Are you trying to set my perspectives correctly? What happened to the book, to the church in the book of Acts is one of the greatest things that ever happened for us. For the gospel started going out from Jerusalem through Judea, Samaria. More persecution caused it to go to the Roman Empire. More persecution caused people to go to Europe. And eventually people sought freedom from the tyranny of the king and came to the United States of America to worship in a free country and to preach the gospel. And you and I are recipients of it. Thank God for the times he pulls the rug out from under our feet. And bless him for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the times that are a crisis, or even a tragedy. For you promise that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. Help us learn the lessons. And Father, we want to pray tonight for those who have been resisting the call of God upon their lives with a stiff neck they've resisted. Your spirit has tried to speak to them. They put it off. And tonight, perhaps you're calling them. We pray there that you'd rescue them. I want to give a simple invitation now. If I just spoke about you and you want to give your life to Jesus, raise your hand right now and keep it up. God bless you. And you in the back. Anyone else? Just raise up your hand and say, Tonight I'm giving my life to Jesus. I'm not going to wait any longer. I'm not going to play church. I'm not going to keep going. I'm surrendering tonight. Anyone else? Just raise up your hand. You can put your hands down now. Father, we pray that these who have raised their hands would have assurance of their faith and salvation and grow in their relationship with you securely. 
pray that they would know that they're forgiven as they give their life to you and as they turn in repentance from what they know is displeasing to you and pursue you. In Jesus' name, amen.